Matt Kibbe here, your host at Kibbe on Liberty. The building behind me is where the Mont Pelerin Society meeting is being held. This, of course, is a famous gathering of mostly Austrian economists founded by Frederick Hayek. It is also the place where, in 1944, the so-called Bretton Woods Agreement was hatched up by the infamous John Maynard Keynes and a guy named Harry Dexter White, who was a Treasury official under FDR, later discovered to be a Soviet spy. So you can imagine how this central plan to control our currency turned out in the long run. It was the death knell to the gold standard, and and it has created all sorts of chaos ever since. I'm going to be talking to some of the brightest brains here, not just about monetary policy, not just about the Bretton Woods Agreement, but where liberty was then, where it is today, and how we move forward. Check it out. Dan, how's it going? Great, man. We are um, in the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire at uh, the Mont Pelerin Society. Yeah. In, uh, I don't know if these are sacred grounds or haunted grounds. Yeah, I'd imagine uh, haunted would be uh, more of the liberal perspective. Bretton Woods system sort of founded and or manipulated here. Yeah, and I, a lot of people that, that think about monetary policy from an Austrian perspective point to Bretton Woods, Henry Hazlitt very famously critiqued it in real time, but I go back all the way to the Whiskey Rebellion because the, the tax that Hamilton convinced Washington to impose on the great distillers in Pennsylvania was used to finance the first national bank. So I feel like, I feel like we lost the Republic long before Bretton Woods. I would defer to you on that. I'm not a I'm not a monetary historian. I'm actually more familiar with like coinage in ancient Greece than I am the American monetary system. Well, that'll be a different show. Sure. But uh, you are here uh, representing the fairly new, if not brand new, Stevenson Institute at Wabash College, Stephen in- Stevenson Institute for Classical Liberalism. Um, and and I want to I want to dig into those last two words on that, sure. but uh, what's the what's the the when did this start? So the the institute itself, I believe, was founded uh, thanks to a gift from uh, your friend of mine, Richard Stevenson, in 2021. Uh, last year, uh, so 2021-22 academic year was the first uh, year that I was at Wabash College. So they. They started, they founded the center, they gave it the title, and then they searched for a director, someone to sort of like design original programming and get things up and running um, and sort of set the vision for the organization. And so it's been a, a, a great treat. I think um, it, while it's a new initiative in and of itself in the branding of uh, Stevenson Institute, et cetera, it's, it's more of like a homecoming. I think a lot of people don't realize uh, the critical role Wabash College played in classical liberalism in the United States in the 20th century. So you've got powerhouse Ben Rogge, a uh, huge mover and shaker, collaborator with Leonard Reed over at the Foundation for Economic Education, also collaborating with people like uh, Milton Friedman. So Capitalism and Freedom, the sort of canonical text of the pop classical liberal movement was actually designed as a sequence of lectures to be delivered at Wabash College. Furthermore, uh, faculty members like Baldy Harper were on staff uh, 
in, in similar time periods as Ben Rogi. Baldy Harper went on to found the Institute for Humane Studies. Uh, alumni and benefactor Pierre Goodrich, uh, founder of Liberty Fund, uh, originally designed the Goodrich Reading and Seminar Room, which is part of the library at Wabash College, which has his sort of architectural vision of classical liberalism and its relationship to, say, liberal arts and Western civilization and the sort of like grand intention of higher education through uh, the liberal vision etched in stone on the walls. So. I didn't realize was 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 Rogi the Ben Rogi the epicenter of of drawing all of those powerhouses to to Wabash. I mean, these things are really hard to discern just by like archival materials and and written stuff. But uh, John Van Sickle was also on staff, and John Van Sickle was critical in helping Mises and Hayek uh, emigrate out of Europe into the United States during uh, World War II. Um, and so I would I would say Van Sickle and Rogi together were very um, critical players in sort of promoting, fostering, and sponsoring the classical liberal perspective at the time. Um, definitely more communicators and educators and sort of administrative functions in uh, the educational system more so than, say, like a Friedman, a, a core researcher, Nobel laureate, or or a theorist like Mises or Hayek or anything like that. They were they were like sort of on the ground mover shakers. Yeah, that that's I mean this is something that appeals to me particularly with with Rogi and you know he's not someone that had that wrote a lot and I think that the one book that I'm thinking of and and perhaps the only book was really just a collection of lectures because he was a storyteller. He wasn't he wasn't an academic the way that you would think about about a Hayek lecture. Yeah. Uh, so can capitalism survive? And then there's the Liberty Fund edition of the a Maverick's Guide to Freedom is the sort of title that they put on. And if you look at them, a lot of them are sort of like similar themed like dinner presentations, like uh, a message to the donors and the network of Foundation for Economic Education or a comment on a critical strategic pivot in some dedicated organization's goal or mission. So, uh, but even, uh, even though the, the writings that Rogi produced are relatively sparse, um, the incredible bread machine is sort of like this really fun video. We, we hosted on the, on the website for the Institute, um, shows a, a pretty nuanced and sophisticated understanding about, um, sort of unintended consequences in public policy and the sort of like influence and framework of classical liberalism at the time. Um, but then also, I mean, A, he has a very keen eye for strategy and the role of these organizations in fostering um, the broader relevance of classical liberalism in American culture at the time. But then also, like just his definitional clarity on what classical liberalism is. Uh, he's got this quote that it's an end of innocence philosophy and that um, it forces us to reckon with the idea that there will be no new Jerusalem. And he, he makes the proto-Hayekian point about um, that the reality of our society's progress has been largely unplanned, which puts strong parameters and limitations on what it is that we can hope to design in terms of a great society. I, I suppose for my audience, we should, I, and I point this out all the time, but if, if you're new to this show, when you say the word liberal or liberalism, you're talking about the classical version, which meant free yeah. freedom, um, respect for civil institutions, and and allowing people 
to thrive as long as they don't hurt people or take their stuff. Yeah, I think, um, well, I think that there's sort of two ways that classical liberalism gets, or, or, or just say liberalism proper in this sense, gets defined. One is through the starting point of political philosophy or political theory, which would be as a standard for assessing the justice and sort of virtue of a society that we would judge society A against society B and ask which one is sort of better based on which one is more free. Um, but actually, I think classical liberalism as an intellectual tradition has a more nuanced and more profound uh, uniqueness than just as one of many possible political philosophies. So the typical comparison against liberalism would be something like egalitarianism, like society A versus society B, we would ask which one's more equal. But classical liberalism, especially surrounding the Scottish Enlightenment, is basically responsible for inventing social science. And so my favorite definition of liberalism is, is Mises's, where he's like, it's the application of science to the social life of man. So liberalism in that framework is liberty, as you say, it is more of a conclusion. It's, hey, here's how uh, human nature shapes our choices and opportunity set for how we live our lives. And that means something about the predictable outcomes of when people associate and group together and interact. And liberty or, or, or thick appreciations for people's freedom, individuality, and diversity is just really important to help society function in that sense, as opposed to well, this is my presumption first principle, and now I'm going to sort of backward engineer what I want society to look like. It's it's a subtle difference, but I, I would argue classical liberalism is more of an intellectual tradition than it is a traditional political philosophy. In some sense, it, it sort of breaks the mold of conventional political philosophies. Yeah, I know there's this ongoing debate amongst Austrian economists and the, 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 the Venn diagram overlay between classical liberals, libertarians, and Austrian economists is almost 100 percent, mm -hmm. but it's these are these are in some sense two separate things. Well, and in many ways, like that observation is to some extent getting a little bit outdated. So it used to be like, okay, well, if Austrian economics is so positive and and non-normative, it's it, it's just descriptive and. Uh, and, and, and purely scientific, then why is it that so many of them share a political ideology of, say, libertarianism or classical liberalism? But funny enough, I mean, uh, in the last 20 years, we've, we've gotten all sorts of sort, uh, like, like amalgamations of, of what modern liberalism or, or modern libertarian movements entail, including the bleeding heart folks and sort of liberalitarianism. And so in some sense, it used to be a common anecdote to be like, well, why are there no Austrian socialists or why are there no uh, Austrian Democrats? And it's like, uh, I mean, have you looked around? The, the majority of, uh, of self-identified classical liberals are, are sort of, um, I would say, like uh, probably registered Democrats. It, like it, it wouldn't be crazy uh, to recognize a lot of people, especially in the academy now, who would be self-identified appreciators of an intellectual tradition, but who are also voting on the left side of the of the aisle as much as the right? Yeah. Um, I don't I don't really know if one is necessarily better than the other per se, but it's I don't think uh, the accusation of of these things necessarily being 
corrupting or uh, always uh, correlated with one another is, is holding as strongly as it did maybe in the 1970s or 1980s. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today, just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love liberty and look cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see it. And you you discover these sort of uh, splinter groups. And I, I love splinter groups because I believe in infinite variations on a theme. And and I, I struggle. Like, I don't even like labels so much. And I, I don't like using isms, even when it's one of my favorite isms. But but there is, like, you, you can imagine a, a communitarian version that, that is very much inspired by, by Hayek and Mises, not only methodological individualism, but, but understanding um, emergent order from, from people with, with purpose and choice making decisions in a radically uncertain world. And that's how I think about it. But I, I, just, I just know that if, if whatever ism doesn't want that process to happen is destructive. And and that that's what defines my libertarianism. But I could see communitarianism. I could see like you you could be you could theoretically be this will upset everybody watching this. But you could theoretically be a democratic socialist and and appreciate this process as long as you don't think that you can use violence to to restructure that process. Yeah, I actually I think that's um, an interesting observation and one that uh, a lot of professional academics probably come across a lot. Because there are a lot of people, um, or maybe it's a, a symptom of our modern times where all organizational or institutional participation are settings and microcosms of the broader society and therefore stages and venues for applying or uh, adopting the praxis of your vision of justice and social justice. And so... I've met a lot of sort of old guard academics who I think politically would be like Marxist or die in the wool, thoroughgoing left-wing socialists. But when it comes to the internal operations of their colleges or universities, it's a live and let live, uh, let a thousand flowers bloom. Like you don't tell me what to say or what to By do. By the way, the one thing that Mao said, he didn't mean it, <laughs> but the one thing that, that he said that makes me a Maoist is, is let a thousand flowers bloom. Yeah. Um, and then he killed you, but that, yeah. <laughs> that part I don't agree with so much. But there, I, it does seem like uh, an imp, maybe an explicit or implicit implication of many varieties of modern social theory are that like you you can't have uh, an appreciation for openness and freedom within an internal organization because you have a responsibility to sort of like implement social change at the broader broader scale. I think. Um, that's hard to work with. Yeah. Pol- politics ruins everything because the, the problem with with grand designs is and you you can appreciate this 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 spontaneous emergence of, of culture and social institutions and and people problem pro- solving solving problems in a uncertain world. But then if you want to start tinkering, mm-hmm. you you have to interrupt that process. Right. And it's to me, like I, I think about it quite simplistically, like there's cooperation and then there's violence. Mm-hmm. And these are two paradigms that really don't 
mixed together. And that, that sort of gets at the, at the values of, of the Stevenson Institute because I, you, you lay out these, these, these pretty fundamental principles. And I, I love talking about it at the principle level because it's not political at all. And these are, these are just what I would consider common sense human values, the kind of stuff that your mom taught you when you were beaten on your brother. And she's like, don't hurt him. Don't take his stuff. <laughs> I was the younger brother, so it was yeah. typically the other way around. Um, <laughs> You're the victim. But the, the voluntary course of dichotomy that you lay out, I think, is important. Um, in, in the wake of Eleanor Ostrom's Nobel, there's been this sort of like renewed appreciation for civil society, a sort of like Tocquevillian extension of, hey, you know, churches and um, nonprofit groups and clubs and all of these sort of organizations that don't fit the mold of profit seeking in the marketplace or governmentally subsidized. Um, are sort of forgotten or ignored by a, a very rigid conventional model of political economy. And I think there's a valid point to be made there, but it's sort of a reactionary point. Um, I, worry too, I worry a lot that uh, a focus and the, the semantics of civil society ignores this role of voluntariness that you're observing. Because if you go back to Smith, truck barter exchange, rape, pillage, and plunder, the, the voluntary distinction captures the, the third environment, right? Civil society is part of just voluntary behaviors. So the, the profit-seeking element and the government uh, fiscal subsidy element is sort of a, a red herring that, that's ignoring this more foundational uh, uh, element. And so uh, Dick Cornell, uh, Lenore Ely is here at Mont Pelerin this weekend. Her and I have been in... Uh, a pretty extended conversation because um, Ben Rogi also shared this appreciation for the terminology of the independent sector. And the independent sector invokes, I think, more this appreciation for voluntarism, this protection against um, influence and intervention by central authority. Um, and so, again, early mid 20th century, there were vibrant discussions across uh, the smaller colleges and private institutions about um, whether or not they were going to take federal funding, about what that would mean, how accreditation would potentially corrupt curriculum. And Wabash College, Ben Rogi were, were at the heart of a lot of those d debates and discussions. I recently, and I think this was a Mont Pelerin meeting at uh, Francisco Marroquin in Guatemala City, I only recently learned that Ben Rogi was very much part of the drafting of the business plan for this fabulous classical liberal institution and of all places, Guatemala. And I tell people that that exists and they're like, what? Yeah. what? I fully admit, I, I didn't know any of that institutional history until I talked to Lenore about it as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, basically, uh, I think uh, Richard Epstein is here as well, uh, runs a similar classical liberal center at, at, at New York University. Uh, I mean, right when I started, I started emailing people and including my new byline. I mean, everybody has these sort of like, Eight, not everybody, but the, the older cohort of, of classical liberal scholars definitely have just these war chests of stories re regarding Ben Rogi and long debates and continual uh, correspondence and stuff. So uh, it, it, he, he definitely served a very important role in the movement at the time. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events 
to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a, a gift today. Um, don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. The most popular t-shirt we make, and there's, there's a method to this madness. You don't know this, but uh, the reason Thanks, that I hurriedly told you, hey, can you do this today instead of tomorrow? We were going to talk tomorrow. Uh-huh. Um, you're sitting where Vernon Smith was going to sit, and he canceled at the last minute. So no, no big pr- shoes to fill. Yeah, no, no pressure at all. But you, <laughs> you ha- you're repping for a Nobel laureate right yeah. now. But uh, um, the origins of that shirt, I think, go back to 2010. And I was, I was listening to uh, Vernon Smith give an off-the-cuff the talk about Adam Smith and the theory of moral sentiments, mm-hmm. which has, has really dominated um, the last 10, 15 years of his research mm-hmm. because he's – He's trying to understand his his technical economic research and, and the, the games and and all that stuff, and he's finding answers in Adam Smith, mm-hmm. and and out of that lecture, um, me being not I'm I'm not particularly smart, but if I hear something, maybe I could translate it into something that would make sense to me. So I'm like, so 700 pages, theory of moral sentiments. Don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. And, and, you know, maybe there's a footnote to that, maybe. But that's, that's my version of, of Adam Smith. And I'm, I'm going somewhere with this, believe it or not. Um, in a lot of ways, when I reread Ben Rogie, just in the last five years, I realized that his mission was to translate really substantial, complex, difficult economic concepts into something that would that would resonate with with people around the dinner table, and I, I want to read this quote because it it sort of has become my mantra. Ben Rogie in it, I think it's from Can Capitalism Survive? If capitalism is to survive, it must defend itself in the arena of values and emotions. Mm-hmm. We can't just put up a a slide of a downward sloping demand curve. We can't just put up a spreadsheet that shows the, the utility maximizing nature of, of market processes. We have to make a pitch for people that this, this, this thing is beautiful. Liberty is beautiful. The process of, of discovering your own life is that the journey is everything. And I think I see that in, in the mission statement at the Stephen Institute. I think... Um so he, so hearing you quote Ben I, I, Rogi on that uh, on that margin, I can't help but think that um, the one thing that that we haven't really focused on in the discussion thus far, uh, tragically, is his role as an educator um, and the community and residential campus of Wabash College. Um, insofar as so, Rogi never wanted his coursework to be required curriculum for a major credit or, or anything like that. He wanted students to have to want to enroll and volitionally choose. So Interesting. The, the notion, I mean, which I, it resonates so much with me because as a professional academic, you get uh, engaged in all these conversations that are really technical about pedagogy and curricular design. 
And similar to planning a great society, everything looks great on paper when you assume that nothing ever goes wrong and everybody like has a shared vision and is on the same page and you have to take course 101 before 201 and so on and so forth. But um, particularly amongst, I think, like the free market uh, cohort of, of educators, I mean, there's a common advice that like assume that the class that you have students in is the only class that you're ever going to see them in and the only class in economics that they're ever going to take. Like you can't take for granted that they've got a background and know all of the sort of like simple material ahead of time and you have to sort of meet them where they're at. And I think that Rogi's sentiments in the quote that you read sort of echo that, that if you challenge the notion of pedagogy, the, the relevant thing that separates successful students from unsuccessful students is a wantonness to learn. So part of our responsibility as educators or communicators of ideas, whether it's in the classroom formally or you're just sort of a spokesperson and, and trying to have a podcast or influence in that way, you, you need to inspire people to recognize the importance, the profundity, the beauty of the thing it is that they're trying to understand. And so, uh, I mean, the, if you genuinely find compelling the insights of free market economics and classical liberalism, they're, they're literally tools that unlock the social universe. They, they help you make sense of the world that you live in. They help you navigate your personal life most likely your professional life and profit seeking and sort of entrepreneurial endeavors as well. And if you are enthusiastic and inspirational in that role, uh, I think students sort of lighten, lighten up and, uh, and sort of fall in love with the business of ideas themselves. And I think that Ben Rogie understood that very well. He, he was a teacher and, and you like the, the entire world of academia um, typically requires um, intellectuals to teach as well. But, but I've noticed that there's two types of professors I'm grossly simplifying here. And that those who sort of phone it in, they show up, they, they probably give the same lecture they've given a thousand times. And those who actually try to connect with students and turn them on and, and get them excited about something. And you, you can see, I'm not going to name any names, particularly people that are still alive, but you, you can see the, the legacy of those professors that take teaching seriously. And Ben Rogie, like you, you and I know this story, um, my, my friend Dick Stevenson, who is the inspiration for your institute, um, he got turned on to this stuff by Ben Rogie and eventually found himself in the Mises Seminar in New York City. He somehow got into the, the Rand Circle. I don't know if he got kicked out, which was quite typical at the time, but um, he, he was so inspired by this stuff. And then, then he went on to be a very successful man. Mm -hmm. um, but most professors don't do that. And I think, I think that's part of what you guys are trying to accomplish. You want to turn people on. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, maybe there was something distinctive about Rogi style him, himself or the sort of like well, ethos he was a comedian. of Wabash. He was a comedian. Yeah. He's funny as hell. But, um, I mean, in meeting alumni, uh, having been uh, a part of the, the college community for about a year now, it's, I mean, the number of people like Dick who had this sort of like transformative experience by means of interacting with Ben and the, the particular nature of the types of stories that they, 
they share is like very similar. It's well, Professor Rogi got me accepted to the summer seminar at the Foundation for Economic Education. But coming off a farm in Indiana, I had never been to New York State or New York City or, or, or traveled anywhere outside of the state. And so like two weeks left of the semester, Professor Rogi came in, he took out his wallet and he gave me $200 and he said, you're gonna need to buy yourself a train ticket and get yourself to, do New, to New York by three weeks from Tuesday. And then he turned and then he paused and he turned back, and he took out another $100 and he put it on the table and he said, and stop by Manhattan and have yourself a good time on the way back. Um, and so there, the, Wabash College only has a single um, uh, behavioral rule for our students and it's be a gentleman always. Um, many of your viewers probably uh, unaware, Wabash College is only one of two all-male uh, undergraduate institutions left in the United States, Hampton Sydney College, another sort of powerhouse of classical liberalism as well in their economics department. Um, and we just have the single rule, be a gentleman's always, uh, be a gentleman always. Um, and it's very inspired by, uh, call it Tocquevillian or liberal, just this notion that in order to learn <laughs> how to be an adult, it requires an opportunity for failure. It requires a sort of like open experimentation of how to conduct oneself and how to judge for oneself. The propriety of behavior and I meet alums and they're I mean they're people in their 80s now who it still means so much to them that when they turned 18 and got to be a part of this institution that they were treated with respect and dignity as adults for the first time and that that has sort of like left this lasting impression on them for decades thereafter yeah there's a there's a sense of community that um, that I discovered when I went to my first Foundation for Economic Education summer seminar, mm -hmm. and and I, I had been at Grove City College, so there were at least a few of us that were interested in ideas and interested in in the the, the engine that propelled civil society, but it was it was incredibly transformative to me that to discover that there were in fact dozens more of us. At fee and one of the one of the programs that that it, it sounds like there's not as much of this as there used to be the summer seminar um, you are bringing young people to Wabash yeah um, so week long intensive seminar I mean the the idea is that again uh, Pierre Goodrich had a vision uh, sort of galvanized in the architectural schematics for the, the Goodrich Seminar Room. You can learn more about the particular architectural vision on Liberty Fund's website. But it's the idea that the, the most meaningful influence on the long arc of human civilization is individual liberty and human freedom. And that if you want to understand what it means to be a person in our society, requires a thorough understanding of what liberty is, <laughs> what its causes and consequences are, and then how to promote and protect it. Liberal arts, right? The art of being free. Uh, I try to tell students like martial arts are to ninjas <laughs> as the liberal arts are to free individuals. Um, and so I first attended IHS and FEE and all these sort of summer uh, seminars and was blown away because it was so refreshing 
because there was a consistent thread across the faculty. So you'd have a, uh, a comparative literature faculty, a political science faculty, an econ faculty, a historian, and then, but each of them had this sort of like core insight of, well, we're really interested in, in what the treatment and understanding of freedom is in this material, these theories, these research, this, these findings. And the college campus of the late 20th century is, is almost schizophrenic on this issue. Um, students take classes in different departments and lose sight of any sort of like cumulative or complementary insights across the departments. And so the summer seminar is just an opportunity to connect those dots in real time for students to uh, put those different disciplinary backgrounds, but with a shared appreciation of liberty in the same room with one another so that um, students can, can, can draw on all of that, um, that different expertise. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibbe on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. So what does the curriculum look like on a, on a practical level? So uh, typically, our last year was the first year that we had it. Uh, in the future, I think we're going to be collaborating with the American Institute for Economic Research. Um, they have a broader stretch of like uh, on-call faculty as well as an online reach for, for advertising um, for student attendees. But it, I mean, it's a very straightforward program with multiple lectures in the morning, uh, lunch break, lectures in the evening, uh, discussion, um, breakout groups, uh, intensive Q&A, and then just, I mean, the thing that I always found really, really endearing about it, again, is sort of the, the rogy insight that nobody has to be there, <laughs> right? It's, it's all of the insightful value of a college experience with none of the downside. There's no tests and there's no homework. Uh, there's no formal assignments. You, you, it's, it's a group of people self-sorted for a shared interest in a particular subject matter who are clearly nerdy about it in in a sufficient margin to give up a week of their uh of their summer and sort of travel to somewhere strange and just focus on asking and discussing this one topic so unlike uh, mandatory classwork um it's yeah. it's voluntary i see a theme here yeah yeah i mean uh uh freedom not coercion yeah let 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 people express their preferences i would say is sort of like the correlate to like i don't like telling people what not to do right. <laughs> um but uh but things that i think are great about being alive and being informed and in participating in the life of the mind and the professional academy is um you you can do anything i a lot of, I, I never really got that into video games, but like a lot of the young people are, are really high on them at the moment. And it's like, if you made a video game that had the parameters of reality, people would think it was amazing. 
And so it's bizarre to me that people want to play video games instead of participate in reality. But like Minecraft is essentially the same thing. It's like, oh, so there's all these blocks and you can build anything. And I'm like, well, you you can do that here too. <laughs> you can do that in in the analog world. Yeah. So it it strikes me that, and and sometimes I struggle with this, particularly over the last three or four years where I think there's been a lot of um, devastatingly bad decisions made that 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 were were bad for people and and hurt the most vulnerable among us but um, classical liberalism to me is ultimately a wildly optimistic philosophy we can work through this provided that people are free enough to be allowed to solve problems and you're not you're not sort of predetermining where they're going to end up are you an optimist yeah i think so i mean uh, my first reaction when you were speaking is like, well, what other choice do we have? Yeah. Um, I think I'm a realist in classical liberalism insofar as like, so like the public choice tradition where we insist upon behavioral symmetry between governments and the private sector that, well, there's no, there's no closet filled with pod people who aren't self-interested that we have the convenience to staff all of our public bureaucracies and office holders with. Right. If uh, it, it seems nonsensical to say, OK, well, people in the market, they're driven by profit, but people in political office, they're driven by altruism. No, it's the same people. So if we have a problem, <laughs> like whatever it is, I mean, it means someone has to do something to fix or improve upon it. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know uh, all the answers to every form of complaint that people could have. But it seems like the structure and the sort of conditional factors for how people solve problems effectively would be where to start. And I think that, uh, I mean, this is very uh, a sort of like Hayek-inspired approach to the question is like, don't rather than look at like the ingredient list of the recipe, look at the processes. Look at, um, are, are we allowing for openness? Are we allowing for experimentation? Are we allowing for good... Uh, error correction, updating, feedback. Um, how do we learn new things? How do we make sure that we're paying attention and receptive to um, to supporting the people who have ideas and, and and proposals for finding solutions to problems? This gets to to the to, to the rogie question, and I can't say that that particular essay was necessarily optimistic. He was. He was um, expressing substantial anxiety that people don't appreciate the process that you're describing. They don't necessarily have faith that if if you let free people work things out, that you'll you'll get the outcomes. And this this is a, a fundamental dilemma that I think our side has because the other side, left, right, whatever, comes up with a plan. Yeah. I'm going to do something, and yeah, you know, we just went through this with with the pandemic and the lockdowns, whatever, whatever the lockdowns were not, and I, I think they were a colossal humanitarian failure, it was a plan. And someone stood up and said, I have a plan. Um, we have a hard time explaining the, the potential of not having a central plan. Yeah, I, um, so this past semester, I've been teaching a class on the political economy of crisis and response. And so we started the semester by rereading Hayek's Road to Serfdom, 
And so a lot of the way you're paraphrasing Ben Rogi is just perfect echo of, of Hayek's insights therein, where, I mean, Hayek's basically saying that the, the big problem with 20th century political ideology is impatience, that uh, the progress of liberalism just wasn't fast enough. It didn't solve every problem that we could possibly uh, hope it to solve. And so this this notion that um, why would we wait around for subtle change and unplanned um, free people to fix things when we have the power and potential and plans to to make improvements at the margin? And once you sort of allow for that, right, especially if you're ignorant to the fact that you're going to fail and fall short in the plans and then inspire unintended consequences and then reinstigate the entire process all over again, which means intervention begets intervention. Fix, fix the thing you broke. Right, yeah. right. Um, it, it, it has this entropy to it. And so I think like um, one response is that, well, like in the American system, federalist checks and balances and constitutions are basically ways to put fail safes and say, look, like, Here's a realm of things that we just like don't really respect government to participate in. Um, and I think so right after I have students and my and myself reread Road to Serfdom, we go on to Bob Higgs's Crisis and Leviathan. And so in Higgs's view, um, again, there's like a where Hayek is saying the, the, the kernel of the problem was in this ideological shift in the changing definitions of freedom and the general attitudes of impatience for liberalism, Higgs is saying that, well, it's that cultural and ideological component um, where you would need to have the potential to fend off this sort of inevitable ratchet and growth of large-scale government. Um, I don't... I, I think a lot of people typically take this insight to to really uh, self-validate their particular strategy of like, well, I'm going to start the Stevenson Institute or I'm going to start Free the People and like this is what we need everybody to do. But again, it's like no, no one of the answers is necessarily the answer. I think the answer is in the fact that we're going to have dozens of different people pursuing different uh, strategies of, of promoting a culture of protecting freedom. Um, Let a thousand flowers bloom. Yeah. So um, I have to point out that that we're at the Mont Pelerin Society meeting, um, and it's come a long way because I understand they're actually going to live stream um, a number of the keynote addresses. And it used I didn't know that. it used to be kind of a secret thing, I think, born out of the fact that um, it was literally founded in some of the darkest days of of. Of, of Europe on a mountaintop in Switzerland, Mont Pelerin, surrounded by fascists and socialists and Marxists and all these violent isms that, that, I, that I was talking about. And in that sense, I suppose we can be optimistic because we're not hiding, mm-hmm. we're broadcasting, and we're, we're going to tell people about this stuff. Um, I think that it, for all of my short-term pessimism, I also have to be an optimist because we survived that. Mm-hmm. So, so this this seems easier, maybe. Yeah, um, I'm not. I've heard a, th- there's lots of like sort of like competing and overlapping 
pieces of lore surrounding uh, Mount Pelerin. I know that Hayek thought we needed a venue to have the greatest and most important social debates of our time. Uh, essentially, I, like, I take that comment as something along the lines of like, well, what filled the broadcast airwaves of either the news or um, even public intellectual commentary, like wasn't really grappling with like socialism versus capitalism. And this was something, if you're going to recognize that there's a cultural component to social change and the growth of, of government or the lack of freedom, then uh, a purely elite-driven intellectual class simply won't do, right? You you need the stakes of a free society compared to a planned society to be understood and appreciated by as many people as you, you, you possibly can in that sense. So um, without some meaningful cultural institution to take up the responsibility to say like, well, how are we going to curate content and promote that? Like I I've heard some people describe it, that he envisioned it to be like television debates, like whoever the leading socialist thinker is and the leading capitalist thinker is hmm. in the world. Like we're going to put them on TV and broadcast it nationally. So it's ironic if it's the case that like only this year, are we finally getting around to live streaming MPS? Uh, like what have we been doing? Yeah, we're, um, we're still not allowed to tweet yeah. apparently or X. Well, do, we, do we? I don't know what it is anymore. Yeah, I should clarify. I, like I'm not a formal member of MPS, and I like there's a lot of the sort of like internal policies that, in my opinion, are just more complicated than like I commit to. Me- am capable of committing to memory at the moment. But this I, is, I love spontaneous order yeah. personally. But <laughs> uh, so if someone, the last question. So if someone is watching this and they they have a. a a child is ready to dig into this. How do you get into the summer seminar or other programs at, at the Stevenson Institute? Sure. Um, well, our campus events during the academic year are always open to the public. So if you happen to be in Crawfordsville, Indiana, uh, be sure to check our, uh, our event calendar on our website, which is uh, if you just go to wabash.edu and search the Stevenson Institute for Classical Liberalism, it'll come up. Um, the summer seminar will have a registration page and some pretty simplistic application process about uh, explain uh, what role freedom has. And is it for undergrads? Is that undergraduates? Uh, if you have recently graduated, we can review your case and and make uh, exceptions on a case by case basis. Ideally. Um, I mean, we have the capacity for, for sort of scaling and, and increasing the program more generally. So I can, in, whereas right now the theme is basically just the classical liberal tradition, it's designed to be a intensive week-long seminar in lieu of a semester's worth of curriculum if you were to take a class on classical liberalism at the undergraduate level. Um, with increased interest and more engagement in the future we can do thematic seminars on austrian economics or the chicago school of economics or on and on and on down the line of like particular sub areas of core theory i have a request i'd love to see the uh, seminar on the nexus between the big lebowski and hayek's understanding of spontaneous order i know at least three faculty that we could staff that with okay Uh, yeah let's do this (laughs) Okay, that that was ridiculous. So <laughs> so let's end it there. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been super fun. Thanks so much. Cool. Yeah.
Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.